Welcome to the Talking Poem Podcast. I'm your host, Charlie Green. On each episode, I invite a poet, a critic, or a reader to bring in any poem that they'd like to discuss, old or new, well-known or obscure, and we'll see where the poem and the conversation turn. And sometimes, as on today's episode, I'll also talk with my guest about one of their poems. And I'm so delighted to welcome longtime friend and mother of another longtime friend, Andrea Hollander. She is the author of the poetry collections House Without a Dreamer, The Other Life, Woman in the Painting, New and Selected Poems, Landscape with Female Figure, Blue Mistaken for Sky, and the recently released and now Nowhere But Here. We'll talk more about the last one in a bit, but a quick spoiler. I think it's fantastic to borrow a phrase from a previous recording, all bangers. I don't know if you ever expected to have your poems described that way, but uh, Andrea, (laughs) thank you so much for being here. Thank you, Charlie. It's wonderful to be on your podcast. So you've brought in Catherine Barnett's poem, Sun in August. Before you read aloud, do you have any preface for the poem? Yeah, I can say that the poem first uh, appeared in 2018 in The New Yorker, which I am a subscriber of. And I don't always love the poems in The New Yorker. Sometimes I don't understand why they're poems. And sometimes I fall in love. And that was what happened with this one. Then when the book came out, which I think was the same year, I decided, I mean, I read the book and I think she's amazing. Turns out she won a Whiting Genius Award, one of those genius awards. She's also won a Guggenheim. She teaches creative writing at NYU, none of which I knew. I had not really been aware of her. So I appreciate the fact that I can find poems in journals and magazines that I wouldn't necessarily find them anywhere else. So yeah, so yeah. that's my introduction to her. I've also I also teach um, a seminar, kind of a master class. And now it's on Zoom ever since um, ever since COVID. With that masterclass, I introduce a poem or two by a particular poet. And we have a deep discussion um, for an hour about that poem. And then and then I, half of the class, there's only eight people, half the classes sent in a poem of their own. And we we talk about those poems in the same depth with the same depth. So that, so I'm revisiting this poem for us and for your listeners. Are we ready to hear it? We are. Go right ahead. Sun in August. Dignity, I said to myself as he carried the last things into the dorm. It was not a long goodbye, nothing sad in it. All I had to do was turn and head up the hill. All I had to do was balance on two feet that seemed to belong to a marionette who had no idea what came next or who governed the strings. There's no emergency, I told her. Just get back to your car. That's it. That's all that's required. I didn't mind accompanying her. I myself had nowhere to go. She drove east then farther east under a river through a tunnel until she found herself back at home with a purpose. And the purpose was to recognize the green awning, to find a key in a pocket, to fit that key in the lock, take off her shoes, drop them on the floor with others left there like old coins from a place she must have visited. Worth something, but what? 
There were no clues in the medicine cabinet, none in the cupboard, none in the freezer where she found old licorice and bitto honey shoved next to a Ziploc of bluish breast milk, all of it frozen solid over 19 years into some work of art, a sculpture, an archaic something of something. She looked at my hands reaching into the freezer, or I looked at hers. They were strong, worn, spackled with age as they removed the milk ice stashed like weed far in the back. Do they even make this stuff anymore? What's it good for? What was it ever good for? Repurposed, she thought. Isn't that the word the kids keep saying these days? Hey, sweetie, she called to the unoccupied room. Hey, love. It was so hot, the air from the freezer turned to steam. And she took the ice into her own hands, held it, held it gently against the back of my warm animal neck until something began to melt and I was alone. Oh, thank you so much. I love the way that you read that. And I'm also very glad you brought in this poem because I likewise was not familiar with her poems. What's the main reason you wanted to talk about this one? Many reasons, but one of them is that it's about an experience that I've had. I remember leaving my son, Brooke, on campus and then driving away. And on my case, my first thing was I started to cry without realizing I was crying. I was so happy for him. He was doing something wonderful. And he went to Vassar College, so and it's in Poughkeepsie, New York, which is a few hours north of New Jersey, where I grew up and where my father and stepmother were living. And I suddenly had this urge to, to go home to my parents. My mom mm-hmm. had died since I'd gone to college, and my father had remarried after his death, and I had a very nice stepmother. But I just needed to be back in my own home. It's a very unexplainable feeling to let go, to let go. And I love the way Catherine Barnett gets there. She evokes the experience. She doesn't just describe it. She evokes the experience in me. And as she's talking about her experience, she doesn't actually say outright, oh, I was, I had such pain when I dropped my son at, at college. But she mm-hmm. evokes that experience, her experience in me, and she does it in a very interesting way. One of the things she does is she starts as an I, personal pronoun I, and suddenly she speaks as if she is not one person, but two. And the second person is this marionette. And what a wonderful analogy that is. And she keeps with that analogy mm-hmm. through most of the poems until the, the I and the she become one. And I just love the way she did that. And there, then there are, is this, well, it's a long analogy, but also has some other metaphorical language, uh, the similes here and there. So she's using tools, but she's not using tools to make us aware that she's using tools. I mean, I'm talking about poetic tools. She's evoking the experience through the images and through 
those images that touch our senses. And so by the time we get to the last line, and this poem is in tercets, three line stanzas, until the very last line, which is a single line stanza, the last stanza, and when she says, until something began to melt and I was alone. And that's one line, and I was alone. Yeah. And she was alone. Yeah. I mean, that's the thing. You're separating from this child that 19 years before she had carried for nine months. And then she raised him. And then she is now, well, she's leaving him, but he's also leaving her. But the subject is her experience. So many I like, but those were those were some of them. I, I want to tie together what you said about the form and the emotion, because there's something very patient about the tercets, and they also create this kind of quiet tension. And I like the fact that it's quiet because the premise of the poem that she suddenly split in two in a way is so unusual. And there's something very grounding about the, the calm language, but that after she drops her son off, nothing's sad in it. And one, I feel like that's a great risk to take in a poem to say, oh, well, the emotion is not <laughs> strong. But even the little break after that, nothing sad in it. It seems a little bit like rationalization to her. But what I end up loving about the poem, one of the things I end up loving about the poem is the way she generates a much more complicated sense of emotion, that it's not sadness, or if it is sadness, it is something much more than that. There's so much more going on. And I feel like the the tension generated by the sort of regularity of the stanzas and the sort of regularity of the sentences is really powerful, I think. So, yeah, you were talking about um, the tercets, the three lines, and she also is very good at lineation, knowing where a line should end. And for me, a line needs to have movement and something has to happen on a line. It can't just be arbitrary. And the word that ends the line rather than the word that begins a line is the one that we hear a little bit more poignantly or a little louder, if you will, because it's the eye, the the eye has to move down the page to the next line if we're reading the poem. And you're just going to have a psychological break right there. So whatever word ends a line is also important. The words at the end of the opening stanza are myself, dorm, goodbye. And I'll repeat that first stanza. Well, let me just start. Sun in August, S-O-N in August. We would hear S-U-N also, of course, par partially. Mm -hmm. But see on the page, sun in August. We know when and we know she's talking about a son, S-O-N. Dignity, I said to myself, as he carried his last things into the dorm. It was not a long goodbye. And then the line that you quoted is the first line in the second stanza. Nothing sad in it. Mm -hmm. And yeah, well, she's telling herself there's nothing sad in it. But we know she's feeling sad, yes. <laughs> even though she's denying that there's nothing sad. Yeah. Um, of course, there's nothing sad. And my God, I'm, why am I feeling this? And then she says, all I had to do was turn, which is a wonderful line. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yep. And then the next line is, and head up the hill. And then she repeats, all I had to do was balance on two feet that seemed to be long. And then we, we have that name that belonged to what? We have that little... Ooh, the precipice, what's coming next? To a marionette who had no idea. So 
Now she's comparing herself with a marionette, but then in the next stanza, which is her first stanza, the who had no idea, and we don't know what idea of what, what came next or who governed the strings. Now, isn't that how life feels sometimes? <laughs> yes. And, you yes. know, and she doesn't say God and she doesn't say anything except what she said. And we can imagine that. And then the next line is where this first interesting turn to me comes. There's no emergency, I told her. So now right. we have a split in the same line. The I and the her are Two, they're separated by the word told, I told her. And now the rest of the poem is there's a she, a her, and an I, a me. And then they come apart later. I'm so glad you paid that attention to the line breaks for a number of reasons. One is that if you were given these sentences as prose without the line breaks, there's a way in which I think that these seem like the line breaks people would most likely choose which sometimes when that happens, I feel a little disappointed as a reader, but the way that the line breaks are both strong individually and have a kind of cumulative power, that myself is something that ends up echoing in the poem, dorm and the idea of home and temporariness, the emphasis on goodbye, that line breaks aren't just these sort of discrete things that happen once, they're these things that accumulate. And it's incredible to me that, like I said, most of these I feel like are not necessarily surprising breaks or not chaotic breaks, and yet they still have so much power. And that's the, that just yeah, feels like such a hard thing to do. Yeah, and actually you're right. In some ways, these are easy, easy breaks in the sense that there's not any huge surprise. And yet there is a surprise because the material on each of the next lines is unexpected. And yet, what else would you put once you read the line? It's yeah. inevitable. So both uh, unexpected and inevitable seem to be the governing force here. And I think all good poems do that, whether the line as a line, the next line is surprising in the way you expect it or not. Yeah. I (laughs) like the unexpected but inevitable because I was actually thinking about endings of poems and I was actually thinking, taking notes about uh, your poem that we'll talk about later, that the best endings are always have that feeling of that they are surprising and inevitable that once you read them, it has it is where the poem or story or novel has to end. But as a reader, you weren't you didn't see it coming. For me, that that is the sort of in this poem in Sun in August is that when she's in the apartment and we see the detail of the old licorice and bit o honey, which as a side note, I don't know why the bit o honey threw me into like a reverie of oh my god, I used to love those things. Uh, but then the the ziploc of bluish breast milk, which is such an odd detail and such an odd turn, and so odd to have it juxtaposed with licorice and bit o honey, because I think it's really the most specifically detailed moment in the poem. You know that we get the names of things a little more precisely or specifically than we do elsewhere. That's true. I mean, they're in fact they are. You know, licorice is a thing. Mm-hmm. And it's a real thing. She's no longer in the metaphorical world. She's in the actual world of that of her home. When it, it actually started on line 21, she asks, you know, that she's back at home with a purpose. And, and the purpose was, she says. And then the first line after that is to recognize the green awning. So clearly we are now getting specific. And then to find a key in the pocket. A pocket, not her pocket, a pocket to fit that key in the lock, take off her shoes. Now it's not even an eye. Is she still talking is the in the marionette's head in a way? And so it's one of these things. And when we 
By the time we get to the bit of honey and the old licorice is a few stanzas later, and we've gotten deeper and deeper into the house, into the freezer. And for what reason is she doing <laughs> going into the freezer? Well, she says there were no clues in the medicine cabinet. So she's opening things that looking for a purpose, a real yeah. purpose. You know? She has kind of purposeless. She's no longer bringing up her child. And she says, none in the cupboard, none in the freezer. So she's, we see her going through different places in her home where she found old licorice and Biddo honey. You're right about the specificity of the, even the brand name Biddo honey. My question was, what is she putting those things in the freezer for? For whatever reason she did. And there's a kind of mindlessness about that. But then we get to the new stanza where the licorice and the Biddo honey are shoved next to a Ziploc of bluish breast milk, all of it frozen solid over 19 years, into some work of art. I mean, I wasn't expecting that. And then she says, a sculpture. And then she says, an archaic something of something. And of course, the rhythm of that is she's talking about the poem by Rilke, the archaic torso of Apollo, which is a sculpture, which has this famous last line, you must change your life, (laughs) is really what it says. And of course, when she doesn't even say the name of the poem, she doesn't say anything, because you don't have to be a poet to appreciate this poem. And maybe she specifically doesn't name it. And we were just talking about specifics in the freezer. But when she makes this Mm -hmm. kind of analogy, a sculpture like this archaic something of something, and even the rhythm of that archaic something of something, archaic torso of Apollo, it really has a very similar rhythm. She doesn't want to make this poem just for poets, is what my assumption is. And she also wants to, you know, the marionette doesn't know the name of the poem. Mm-hmm. And then that next yeah. line after she says that, she says, she looked at my hands reaching into the freezer. Okay, now we're getting, she's getting back into the self. The marionette is now becoming, well, they're still apart, but but the woman speaker of the poem is now the important thing. And we hear from her after this, as well as the she. I want to stick with the bluish breast milk, because there's a little bit of an echo of regret. And I think it's easy for, and I say this as someone who has no children, I imagine it's easy for parents to look back and to go, I should have done this differently, or why didn't I do this? Why did I make this decision? And the bluish breast milk, the language around it seems to echo that regret, the word shoved next to a Ziploc, and that it's stashed like weed far in the back, that there is this distance that she has from it. And that, you know, even stashing it like weed, that there's something embarrassing or something to hide in it. And it just has that resonance. And it tells us so much about her relationship with her son and the way she feels about that relationship without doing this sort of explicit telling that I find myself always doing, especially in first drafts, but always just trying to make something explicitly clear. And she just trusts the language around it to do that work. Yes, her diction is precise, absolutely precise and quite wonderful. Even in the stanza after the one you were describing, she looked at my hands and I looked at hers. I'm not quoting it exactly. When she's looking at her own hands, I mean, at at hers, at the marionette's hands, she says, they were strong, worn, spackled with age. I love the word spackled. Then in that same stanza, Mm -hmm. that is where she talks about that the milk ice was stashed a lovely 
lovely word also, like weed in the far back. So what you bring up, she's ashamed. And also maybe weed is illegal (laughs) or or she doesn't want her son who's 19 to find it. (laughs) Or found his weed. I mean, we don't know. The thing is that all of that, the history of the, the relationship gets put in those terms that are, they're a complicated emotion. It's a series of of emotions that kind of happen all at once. As you described that sense of regret, have I done things right? Or maybe I did things right, didn't I? (laughs) All of that confusion that she uses here. And I wanted to point out, Charlie, a few stanzas later, well, she says after she talks about the weed, she says, do they even make this stuff anymore? And she's not talking about the weed. She's talking about the milk. And then she says, what's it good for? What was it ever good for? Of course, she knows the answer to that, but the marionette might not know, of course, that part of herself. And then the next stanza, she says, repurposed, she thought. Isn't that the word the kids keep saying these days? Well, back and earlier in the poem, she, she had asked with a purpose. And what purpose was that? So now she's bringing the notion of purpose back, and she still doesn't know which half of her both of them don't know about purpose. And then she says, well, here's an answer, repurpose. But notice that it's not the I who says that, it's the she. Yeah, it's so savvy using the sort of I and the she, and that there are very small moments like that repurposed she thought. I feel like to some extent it captures a different kind of embarrassment. There's a, there's a kind of idea promulgated in sitcoms that, oh, good, my kids finally go to going to college. I get the house back. And I like that this poem is much more the other side of that. And it, all I can do is point at it and look and say, what a genius move to have the she. Because it ends up being what drives so much of the kind of observation. There's a way in which the purpose at first seems clear. The And the purpose was to recognize the green awning, to find a key in a pocket. And there's a way in which it's like, oh, stay in every present moment, move with every motion. But really, it ends up not being that so much. It's much more going from moment to moment, looking for a purpose rather than having one. And that's heartbreaking, maybe a little strong, but it's a little, it feels a little heartbreaking. Oh, but no, it isn't strong. I mean, it isn't too strong. <laughs> yeah. I think you're right. It is heartbreaking. And and how how do we, as writers, those of us who try to write and try to write about complicated feelings, how do we say it without, you know, oversimplifying and, or overcomplicating? I, I think of a something that Charles Wright, the poet, once said in a, an interview that I that I read, he said, you only get to the invisible through the visible. And boy, she does that wonderful because emotions aren't visible. They're, they're the things where, you know, we're, they're tangled up in us many times. And there's nothing very clear about how mm-hmm. letting go of a child. There, it's a complication of emotions. You want your child mm-hmm. to grow up and leave and you don't want your child to grow up and leave. And that's not simple. That's full of lots of entanglements. And to get that out in a poem, you're right, it's partly genius. It's partly practice, because she's a very accomplished mm-hmm. poet, didn't just sit there and write this. She wrote many poems, and I'm sure many failed poems before she, even her first book was out. So, and this book that I just read from is her, that this poem comes from is her third book. And there's another poem in this, for your reader's sake, and then yours, It's called The Humanities, and I would recommend that poem. 
there's lots of wonderful poems in it, but that poem sometime you might want to look at. Yeah, I do. The more time I've spent with this and through our conversation, I appreciate it more and more, even to the point that I have a copy editor brain thing that I have to turn off sometimes. Whenever I see the word something and the word some, it feels to me too vague. And so my initial response to that is I love this poem worth something, but what I found myself resisting it, an archaic something of something. And as we've been talking, I've I've come back around on those uses of something because I feel like what they are in part doing is in one sense, you could read it as well. The poet's just not naming it and not being specific, but it's also, she doesn't know how to name what she's feeling. There's nothing sad in it. Like she doesn't have a language for it. And so the archaic something of something, it shows us, like you said, there's this reference to the Rilke. She's intelligent, she's educated, but even with that, she can't make complete sense of this moment. And so the language, incredible tool that sometimes maybe often fails us, and it does so in that moment as well. I like well, it as well. It, also, it is failing the marionette part of her who wouldn't necessarily know anything, but remembers the sound. Yeah. <laughs> the, yeah. The last thing I want to mention, and then I'll turn it over to you for any other things you want to draw our attention to, is in the next to last line, when she's holding the ice against her neck, held it gently against the back of my warm animal neck. Animal is such a great choice there, in part because she's, to some extent, rationalizing her experience as a parent or potentially doing that. But there's something instinctual about parenting as well and about that relationship. And that the kind of grief she's feeling is an instinct. It's not something that she can sort of plan for or encounter with some sort of expectation. Uh, and so that that choice of warm animal neck, I love the rhythm too, but choosing animal there to bring in this notion of, of something instinctual is just really powerful to me. And we are animals, aren't we? Yes. And that is the line where she is separating herself from the marionette self, which is not animal, which is not warm, but it's the marionette self uh, takes the uh, frozen breast milk, puts it on the back of the neck of the speaker of the poem, who has just deposited her son into his next phase of life. Right. It brings her back. She becomes herself. At, at the same time, she's also that animal self that gave that breast milk and froze it, right? So, and then there's that word something that you mentioned is in the last line again. Yeah. Until something began to melt. And it's not just the melt of the milk. It's something in the, in the self, in the speaker. And I was alone. In other words, I was alone without the marionette part of myself and also without my son. I hadn't quite thought about this, but the idea, like I love the something doing the double work of the ice melting and her melting. There's something familiar about, you know, the idea of the self melting. And there's also the I was alone. There are ways in which those aren't necessarily the most surprising, but the doubling that she does in the poem with her and the the other, that's what makes it so powerful that makes details like that work. Quick transition and then i'll turn it over to you to share with us your poem and the, and we'll talk about it very quick ad break we all know that one of the hardest things to do in life is naming things whether it's a boat a poem a novel or a child there's so much pressure to get it right but finally there's a way to make it easy and earn the respect of your peers shakespeare 
Think of everything named after Shakespeare, infinite jest and pale fire, children named Violet, pets named Tybalt and Mercutio. Are you writing a fantasy novel in need of a title? How about Fall Thy Edgeless Sword? Writing an autobiography? How about A Most Notable Coward? Do you need a name for a new salad recipe with lettuce and cauliflower? How about Heavy Lies the Head That Wears the Crown? Whatever needs a name, Shakespeare takes all the struggle out of it, and your educated friends will think of you very highly. I'm not only reading this advertisement, I use the product as well. Take it from me, Charlie Green, the cream-faced loon. Let's come back to seriousness, and I'll turn it over to you to share your poem after reading The Empathy Cannot Be Learned. Okay, and this is from my new collection that came out on July 28, 2023. The book is called And Now Nowhere But Here. This is the first poem in section two of four sections. After reading that empathy cannot be learned, I believed I could imagine how my father felt when he told me outside my mother's hospital room that this was the worst day of his life. Either you had empathy or you didn't, the book said, and I wondered if I did. I wasn't to confuse it with sympathy. When you felt sympathy, you recognized suffering, but were outside it. Empathy took you inside someone else's feelings through your imagination, as if those feelings were your own. My father was saying words in that colorless way he sometimes did, as if meaning had escaped him. He had not said she was dead, and it didn't occur to me that she could be. Maybe you can't feel empathy until the loss is your own. I'd read the poem by Dylan Thomas that ends, after the first death, there is no other, and no one I loved had died. Every day after work, I'd come here to see her. Once in her hospital bathroom, I tried on a new dress with a low cut back, twirling for her the way I did in, at home when she made all my dresses on her singer. A nurse entered, catching me mid-twirl, glanced at my mother, glared at me, and on her way out made that tisk-tisk sound with her tongue that meant she disapproved and wanted me to know it. Don't worry about her, my mother said after she left. I can't describe, even now, what I felt for my mother mother love, it could be called, or daughter love, which the book didn't even mention. She and I were in this together, whatever this was. Now I stood outside her hospital room with my father on the worst day of his life. When I opened the door and went in, it became mine. Thank you so much for bringing in this poem. Why did you want to share this poem? I have some thoughts potentially about reasons you might have, but I'm curious to hear from you first. Well, I thought it gives a different perspective in terms of the life that one lives. In um, Catherine Barnett's poem, she is a mother who is saying goodbye to her son. And in my poem, I'm a daughter saying goodbye to my mother. So it's, you know, in a, in, in a different perspective in that sense. That was one reason I chose to read that one today. Yeah, and I think that both of the poems are about 
the ways in which we are unprepared for those kinds of losses, not only the sense in which we're never really ready for the first death, but also that we have what we can look to as potential ways of understanding it. So there's the book that makes the, the distinction between empathy and sympathy, which ends up not really being useful ultimately in that last moment when you walk into the poem, or, or pardon me, walk into the room. And there's even the Dylan Thomas poem, that can't prepare you for it. And th there's something similar in the way the poems are about that. And even the book that mentions empathy and sympathy, presumably this book that has given you some kind of knowledge, doesn't even mention mother love or daughter love. We look sometimes to literature or books for some kind of understanding or solace. And a lot of time, it's just not there. It's not even on the radar of the person who's wielding that authority. Thank you, Charlie. Well put. So, yeah, I'm just I'm such a fan of this poem and the entire book. Honestly, I mentioned in an email to you and said this a little earlier on. One of the things I kept thinking about poem after poem is just how there's this kind of turn at the end of each poem. And they always feel surprising and inevitable to me. And it's more impressive because and I have this conversation with writers every time I teach ending a piece of writing is the hardest thing to do or often feels like the hardest thing to do. Sometimes it's because we don't know exactly where we're going or what we've really done yet. But the, the fact that the endings again and again have that sort of note where they ring at the end. I thought of this when you mentioned The New Yorker and reading this poem and the Barnett poem in The New Yorker. And sometimes the poems really wow you and other times they just don't hit you. I wonder if there's more pressure on New Yorker poems because they're almost always appearing by themselves. Like when I read Poetry Magazine, if there's a poem I don't like, I don't feel that much energy against Poetry Magazine. I've just, over the years, I've come to understand not every poem is going to be to my taste and that's fine. <laughs> the New Yorker, there just feels like some so much pressure on every single poem. That's taken us a little far afield from, from your book and the poem. After what you were saying about, about the endings of my poems, I'm going to give myself another pat on the back. I got a <laughs> postcard last week from Ted Kuzer, oh, wow. who was quoted on the back of this book, but the, the quote is from Previous Praise. And he was had read the book, this book. One of the things he said on the postcard was, in all these poems, you do something that you always do in your work. And he said, it's like you uh, climb one step at a time through the poem. And then at the end of the poem, you skip up three steps at once. And I thought, oh, what a beautiful mm -hmm. analogy. That's what I try <laughs> to do. But the other thing you said was, and you were talking as a writer of poetry, how hard it is to get the right ending of a poem. I have a few things to say about about that. And one of them is, well, the funny, the funny one is that Robert Frost said, any fool can write a poem, but only a poet can get out of one. But the other thing is, I think you can't know where you're going. If you know where you're going, even when you get started with a poem, if you already know what you want to say, it's not likely to be very good because it's already in your head. And it has to come, I think, unexpected. As we were talking about Catherine Barnett's poem, it has to come unexpected to you. It has to be discovered by you, or it ain't going to be discovered by the reader. They're going to know that you knew it all ahead of time what you're going to what you were going to say. And you know, if you're if you already know, then maybe you write a write an essay or don't bother. But it's more important to to start a poem and not know where you're going with it. And I didn't know where I was going with this poem. 
even though my mother died in 1970. And this is now, I wrote yeah. this probably about sometime last year in 2022. So gosh, how many years is that? More than 50. The most important, powerful, emotional experiences we have are the ones we do want to write about because maybe we really don't understand how to deal with them even 50 years later. I can, I just remembered picturing that moment outside my mother's hospital room. I'd never written about that moment before, even though I've written about her death and dying before. I even have a poem about trying on a dress in that in her hospital room. It's a completely different poem, but it all has that 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 scene is in that poem too. And yet this doesn't seem like a poem that I'd ever written before. When I teach a lot of personal essay classes and I have students, they'll write about a subject. And then later in the semester, they they often say, well, I want to come back to that, but I feel like I can't just write about the same subject matter. And I said, well, the subject matter may be the same, but your approach to it, I assume, would be different. And we talk about the different ways that we interpret something from our past or the ways we imagine something will vary from, you know, one day to another, from one time period to another. And I, I think of like Tim O'Brien, who has written so beautifully and wonderfully about Vietnam, but the books about Vietnam don't all feel like they have sameness to me. Thank you. That's a good, that's a great compliment. <laughs> I just want to say two quick things about the poem, and then we can maybe play a poetry game if you're up for it. Something that I see working similarly in this poem, in Barnett's poem, is there's a kind of patience moving from moment to moment and line to line. And your poem, unlike hers, has some of those line breaks where there's a different kind of tension within the sentence, where there's an additional meaning, in part because the break is in potentially a surprising place, like when you felt empathy took you. Because so much of the poem is about the ways in which emotion and belief and imagining are different kinds of knowing and the empathy is either a kind of knowing or a gateway to a kind of knowing. So we get as if those feelings were your own. So it's interesting to look at this one next to hers where it feels so regular. And here it's very patient and regular, but there are those lines where that tension gets introduced just syntactically that I really, really love. Yes. And I love playing with the intensity possible in a line that will also, if you put the line break in the right place, and really they aren't line breaks, they are sentence breaks. But you know, we call them line breaks because it's a lot easier and it's one syllable line versus sentence. To create extra aesthetic tension is what I call it by using the line as, as a, an implement of integrity in a poem. And so I play with, with that. And, and I would also tell you that one of the things I was also trying to do in this poem was to juggle internal thinking with external narrative. Sometimes you get a bad balance when something's only narrative and you don't really feel the presence of the speaker. You hear, You feel only a story being told. And that's not what I want to do. I want to tell a story. I do believe that the best poems have both some narrative and some lyric mixed together. But I also wanted to see how much thinking could go on in a poem as well as and remembering, you know, I'm remembering that I read the Dylan Thomas. I'm, I have just read a book about empathy. Now I am actually in a situation where my father is saying something and I'm not feeling, or am I 
feeling what he's feeling. And so I'm playing with that idea on one hand, and yet it's a very serious moment in my life for both of us, my father and me. I wanted to see how much how much tension I could create between the narrative and the thinking and the past and the present of the poem, the poem's past and present. So all of that. And that was that was a good challenge. I just want to thank you for sharing it here on the episode. As I said, and if anyone's listening, buy the book and now nowhere but here. Let's let's do the last bit of silliness. I have a poetry game for you. I have pulled contemporaneous reviews of a 20th century poet, and I'm going to read you the reviews with identifying things like name and poem titles taken out. What I have found so far with this game is it is nearly impossible because so many book reviews sound alike when you strip out names. The first review, and you're you're free to guess between each review. I think there there are six different quotes I've pulled. Blank uses free rhyme very effectively, often musically, and with the minimum of sacrifice to form, conveys a maximum of atmosphere. Oh, can I guess every time? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. It's the same poet. All are describing the same okay. poet. So. so Maxine Cuman? No, that is an interesting guess okay. uh, and one that makes complete sense <laughs> to me. Okay, number two, Blank's notion of poetry, he calls the observations poems, seems to be a purely analytical treatment, verging sometimes on the catalog of personal relations and environments, uninspired by any glimpse beyond them and untouched by any genuine rush of feeling. Could you repeat that one? Yes. Yeah, there's a lot in it. <laughs> Blank's notion of poetry seems to be a purely analytical treatment, verging sometimes on the catalog of personal relations and environments, uninspired by any glimpse beyond them and untouched by any genuine rush of feeling. Gosh, I, <laughs> I'm i a blank. Let's hear the third one. I couldn't find a poet that would fit both the first one you read and that one. And I will go ahead and say that I was able to find almost all the reviews. These all come from the review of a single book, not just a single poet. Okay, that's and good to know. They, So they were all massed together. So I was able to see very, very different responses. This is another negative one. Blank is one of those clever young men who find it amusing to pull the leg of a sober reviewer. We can imagine him saying to his friends, see me have a lark out of the old fogies who don't know a poem from a pea shooter. I'll just put down the first thing that comes into my head and call it blank. Of course, it will be idiotic, but the fogies are sure to praise it. Because when they don't understand a thing and yet cannot hold their tongues, they find safety in praise. James Tate? No, that's a fascinating guess. One of the things I find in doing this is, again, like you can put in the name and it makes perfect sense. And yet is technically not the right one. All right. Well, let me get another guess there. How about Frank O'Hara? No, that part of the review, I think, would be a common response from certain kinds of reviewers to Frank O'Hare. What I have found is so far <laughs> is that there's always one reviewer has some sort of cranky old man kind of response to something. After much contemporary work that is merely factitious, much that is good in intention, but impotently unfinished and incomplete, much whose flaws are due to sheer ignorance, which a year's study or thought might have remedied, it is a comfort to come upon complete art, naive despite its intellectual subtlety, lacking all pretense. 
God. <laughs> it's <laughs> no, it's not, it's not God. I know that, um, <laughs> and it's not Robert Lowell. No, it's not. Another excellent well, it's guess. Somebody more. It's somebody more contemporary than Robert Lowell. I think. I'll give you a hint. It's actually the first half of the twentieth century, which is so. It's Robert Frost. No, you you may get it here. I have to pull. Well, okay, the, give me another. All right, <laughs> blank, whose book blank is really hardly more than a pamphlet, is also a realist, but of a different sort. Like Mr. Gibson, who is, I think, also, there was a writer who's also included in the, re- in the review. Blank is a psychologist, but his intuitions are keener, his techniques subtler. For the two semi-narrative psychological portraits, which form the greater and better part of his book, poem one and poem two, one can have little but praise. The word portrait is in the title of one of the books or one of the poems. Or yes. Two of the poems. I can give you a hint there. Yes. Yeah, you did give me a hint. But, you know, first half of the 20th century and obviously male. And this is an American. And I'm sure it's very obvious and it's not obvious to me all of a sudden. They think for just a moment you can cut the thinking out if you want. <laughs> I usually do that in my own life. Just cut the thinking out. Um, let me ask you one question. Is this a first book of this person? Yes, it is. I'm still blanking. Yeah. Is there one more or not? There, There's one more. Uh, it doesn't really give it away. I, I should go ahead and say, and I had to say this with the previous contemporaneous review game, I would bomb at this. This is so hard. <laughs> and it really, I feel like it tells us much more about reviewers than it does about the poets <laughs> they're reviewing. The language has the extraordinary quality of common words uncommonly used, less formal than prose, more nervous than metrical verse. The rhythms are suggestive of program music of an intimate sort. This effect is emphasized by the use of rhyme. It recurs often internally with an echoing charm that is heightened by its irregularity. Boy, you know, I'd like to read this poet. Maybe I never have. <laughs> Who is it? It's T.S. Eliot. You said American, and he was considered British because he oh. left, so I didn't even think about him. That's right. That makes total sense. I tend to think of him as American just because I, I know born in St. Louis, and so that's just locked into my head with him, but I can totally see that. I have to find another game because this is impossible to guess. <laughs> the, well, it's, it's fun, though. It was still fun to hear now that I, you know, and of course I know his work, but very interesting. Now, that it was his first book, but it still was published in, when he was in England, mm-hmm. not in the United States also. That's interesting. I, I know I appreciate it, even though I didn't ca- guess it. <laughs> yeah, I, I feel like it, it's probably the hardest of all the games I've devised so far. So, well, Andrea, I this has been fantastic. I've been so delighted to get to see you again and to talk about the Catherine Barnett poem and to talk about your poem. Thank you for being here. Thank you to everyone who's listened. Go read some poems, go pet some dogs, and go support some striking workers. Have a great day. Bye.